Welcome to Murder and Mimosas. Just a quick disclaimer before we get started. Our show is Murder and Mimosas. It's a true crime podcast. This means that we do discuss crimes, including but not limited to disappearances, murder, and sexual assaults. All our episodes are told with the respect of the victims and the victims' families in mind. We strive to ensure that we provide factual information, but some information is more verifiable than others. With that, grab your mimosas and let's dive in. Welcome back to Murder and Mimosas. I'm Danica. And I'm Shannon. Today, we are going to be covering our first cult. Not only our first cult, but our first Canadian case. So what is this cult called? It's called the Ant Hill Kids. So let's start with the man who would become the leader of the cult. His name is Rock Terrio. He was born May 16, 1947 in Quebec, Canada, into a home that was French-Canadian, hence him bearing a French name. He was a second child, but the first boy out of what would be seven total children. Rock grew up in the south-central part of Quebec called the Thetford Mines, and despite many describing him as a very smart child, he chose to not continue school after the seventh grade, which was as far as the local school went. He could have gone further, but he just decided not to. His father was a laborer and part of the electrical union called the White Berets, which was a Catholic organization. Between Mass and his father's literature, Rock had a seething hatred for Catholicism and most organized religions in general. On November 11th of 1967, at 20 years old, Rock married a girl from the town over, and her name was Francine. The newlyweds moved to Montreal. A lot changed for the new couple in the next three years. For starters, they became parents to two little boys. The first one was Rock Jr., and then shortly after was Francis. However, Rock Sr. began to develop ulcers that required surgery. The problem was that the complications came from surgery, and he was in constant discomfort. I'm sure that made him less than happy. Oh, for sure. He decided to move his family back to the Thetford Mines where he grew up, and he started woodworking. During this time, he took a less than pure interest in sex. As you can imagine, his wife and his in-laws were not enthused and did not appreciate his new interest. As if that's not bad enough to accompany that new interest, he also began to binge drink. He would essentially use his woodworking sales as a ruse to go out to Quebec City on the weekends and have affairs. One such woman that he had a pretty steady affair with was Giselle. One of many issues with this is that since he was using work as a ruse for this, he was not bringing any money, and it wouldn't take long for his finances to catch up to him. When they did, his home was repossessed, and Francine finally left him. Rock wasn't phased at all, though. He just moved in with Giselle, and it would be around this time that Rock discovers a Seventh-day Adventist. Shannon, do you want to give a brief description of what the Seventh-day Adventists are? Yes, so they are the Protestant Christian denomination, and some notable differences between them and Catholics is the religion he grew up in is the Seventh-day Adventist, considered Saturday the day of the Sabbath instead of Sunday, and they place a heavy emphasis on the second coming of Jesus. Right, so the local Seventh-day Adventists met every Saturday in a motel room, and they were ministered by Pierre Zita. It would be said that Rock was considered one of the most devout followers of this new religion. He followed the holistic lifestyle that they believed in, which meant he quit drinking and began eating healthier. He 
really seemed to find interest with the Old Testament, especially the second coming of Jesus and the message of violent retribution. To make money, he started selling literature of the religion door to door, then graduated to running classes on how to quit smoking. In 1977, at the age of 30, Rock had just under a dozen of his own followers. This group would often hang out and crash at Giselle's apartment. During that same year, Rock and his followers went to an Adventist retreat where Rock recruited two more followers. So let's recap real quick. Rock, Giselle, and a bunch of his followers are staying in one apartment. They all see him as like a healer, and they're following the healthy diet side of the Seventh-day Adventist and all believe the end is near. Okay, so clearly the start of the cult is happening. So what happens next? Well, Rock decides that they should move this whole shebang back to his hometown of Thetford Mines, specifically Santa Marie. So they move like 40 miles south of where they were living and open a, quote, healthy living clinic, which is like organic foods, alternative medicine, holistic things that can cure ailments. So like a whole food stores before it opened. Yeah, pretty much. So Rock decides that they should all wear similar outfits, which were these long tunics that were ankle length. The women all wore green, the men all wore beige, but Rock, because he's special, wore a dark brown one. Their little business is making money, but also gaining Rock more followers. Few people sold all their possessions, donated the money to the clinic, and then moved themselves and their families in. There are also quite a few women in this group, and they all kind of compete for Rock's attention, which of course makes Giselle feel jealous. So at the end of 1977, Giselle pulls a boss woman move and proposes to Rock herself. They married on January 8th, 1978 in Montreal. And want to guess where their honeymoon was? An Adventist retreat? I bet Giselle would have preferred that, but no, there was no real honeymoon. Their gang loaded into a van for a five-hour road trip back home. The entire time, Rock is joking and laughing with the other women, paying no attention to his new bride. That's a way to start off a new marriage. Oh, for sure. While these women may be mesmerized by Rock, the Adventist church is not. Pierre, the minister of the Adventist church, tried to talk Giselle into leaving Rock, talked the younger followers of Rock's parents, and even got authorities involved, but to no avail. In April of 1978, Pierre started a movement within the Seventh-day Adventist congregation and voted Rock out, which honestly, at this point, I don't think really bothered Rock that much. So let's talk about the terrible things happening within the clinic itself. In March of 1978, Geraldine was accepted into the clinic because she had leukemia, and despite her treatment going well in Quebec City, her husband fell under Rock's spell. While in the clinic, Geraldine's father wasn't even allowed to visit her, and her, quote, treatment was just grape juice and organic foods. I'm no doctor, but that doesn't seem like the best answer, unless maybe you're constipated. Right. (laughs) Well, it wasn't the answer, and sadly, Geraldine passed. In true rock fashion, he claimed that God was just ready for her, and it was just her time. Around this same time, Rock has convinced the parents of a 19-year-old that had multiple sclerosis to admit her into the clinic as well. That girl is named Gabrielle, and her parents followed Rock's recommendation. In the spring of 1978, Giselle became pregnant with Rock's child. At this point, she decides to give him two options. Either his commune has to break up and move out, or she and the baby will move in with her father. I'm surprised she waited this long. I'm guessing he chose the commune over her, or this story would probably be short-lived. Yeah, in a way, but not exactly. When When she gave him this ultimatum, he punched her in the mouth and told her she was forbidden from leaving the room for two days. 
So back to the clinic. They currently owe debts. Police are watching since they had someone die there. And now that they're no longer associated with the Seventh-day Adventists, Broxa lost, has lost his health food and literature they were selling at the clinic. Rock decides the best option is just to move. The group loads up and kind of wanders around for a month until about July when Rock tells his gang about the vision he got about the impending end of the world. At this time, though, he has an exact date and how it will play out. I can't wait to hear this. So the end of the world was set for February 17th, 1979, along with major natural disasters like earthquakes, hail, the size of boulders, and lightning storms. Of course, Rock tells them that they will be God's chosen people if they follow Rock's lead and live a righteous life in the wilderness. So July 11th, 1978, they had hiked for two days before finding where they would make their home at what they called Eternal Mountain. While it was called a mountain, it was really just a secluded hill by a little body of water that was known as Black Sec. They sent them a bunch of tents and started building a cabin for their commune. They were working 17 hours a day to make a well and clear land for their cabin. Rock would ration their food, and if anyone complained, he would limit their rations even more. He, of course, did not help with any of the actual work. It always surprises me that these people stay in these cults. I just don't get it. What's in it for them? Well, I feel the same way, and apparently so did his followers, because a few did leave during this time. And while Rock didn't try to stop them, he did let the others know that God considered the defectors as evil. We're going to take a quick second, though, to hear from a follower about her experience of being talked into joining the cult. I'm not very much uh, confident in myself. I didn't uh, believe in myself. I didn't uh, uh, love myself. Well, he asked me, why don't you become an associate with me? You know, you, you want to, to feel yourself uh, useful. You want to, to be happy. Well, perhaps this is a chance, the chance of your life. And I said to myself, yeah, that might be very well the chance of my life. If you ever meet a man who will promise you, you know, I mean, the, 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 the heaven on earth, and you think that will live the most, uh, uh, the, the most beautiful life, you know, um, you will reach a nirvana on earth, and you say to yourself, it's, it's impossible, it's too beautiful to be true, well, yeah. So it takes them about two months to make their commune, which was literally one really big room with a well in the middle. The interior walls were just bed sheets hung up as curtains. In October, just a month after the cabin was completed, Rock began marrying himself to all the women in their compound. While he had no legal authority to marry anyone, this was still very upsetting to his six-month pregnant legal wife, Giselle. Of course, since he was now, quote, wed to these women, he was having sex with them as well. Soon, Rock threw his Adventist diet to the side, going back to drinking, eating junk food, and using his handicapped follower, Gabriella, as a prostitute to get food from local grocers. Do you remember Gabriella was the one that had multiple sclerosis? Struggling there. Rock also began physically abusing others with his punishments, such as hitting them in the head with a club, breaking ribs, making them strip down nude and stand in the snow for hours, and even cutting off toes. What happened when his predicted end-of-the-world day came and went? Rock just told his cult followers that time passes differently for God than it does for them, so it was difficult for mortals to accurately predict specific dates. They seemed to buy into that and continued to follow him. On March 12th of 1980, they were having a party at the commune to celebrate Rock's children from his previous marriage coming to live with him. That was Rock Jr. and Francis. 
During that time, Veer, who watched the three kids on the commune who were not Rock's children, could not sleep because of two-year-old Samuel crying. Veer decided the solution to this was to repeatedly punch the toddler in the face multiple times. They put the toddler in the care of the commune's nurse, which is who we just heard that clip from, who, from what I found, was just trained as a nurse. But the nurse was told by Rock that Samuel should be circumcised. Can't find any reasoning for this, but the nurse poured ethanol down the child's mouth as an anesthetic, and the boy passed from alcohol poisoning. Nothing comes of this for Veer for six months until Veer does some small thing that angers Rock and Rock decides Veer should be castrated and by some miracle talks not only most of the cult followers into this, but Veer himself into this. Veer ran away from the compound about two months later and told authorities about the death of a child at the compound. The police raided the cabin. The coroner resolved that the group was criminally responsible for the death of Samuel. The police charged Rock the boy's parents, the nurse, and Veer with criminal negligence causing bodily harm to the toddler. Claude, who burned the body, was charged with obstruction of justice. The parents of the boy were charged with neglect towards their oldest daughter, who is now five, and another set of parents were similarly charged for their treatment of their son, Simon. Rock was also charged with bodily harm with intent to mutilate Veer. All of the accused pleaded not guilty. All the parents and Veer were released on the condition they would not return to the compound. Rock was denied bail as he was considered a danger to society. Well, they aren't wrong about that one. No, they're not. There was a trial that was nine months long, and the commune members moved to town where the trial was held. Each was found guilty on their counts, all with either probation or less than a year in prison, except for good old Rock. He was sentenced to two years in prison and three years probation on each of the two charges, but to be served concurrently. He was sent to Quebec City. I'm guessing that is uh, where the cult ended? Well, since the police bulldozed down their commune, it would seem that way, but you would be dead wrong. Pun intended. (laughs) The members got four apartments in Quebec City where Rock was being held in prison so they could be close to their leader. Rock got out of prison in February of 84, and in May of 84, Rock moved his cult to a similar isolated place before having them again build a new commune. They began selling fruit and pastries to make money for the group, and Rock organized the group into a company called the Ant Hill Kids. His reasoning for this name was because they worked together like ants do. However, as time passed, Rock went back to drinking, which meant he went back to being violent. Rock would put together nude wrestling matches between the women, or he would put a man in the middle of a circle and demand the women to hit and kick the man. Sometimes he would join in the matches, but of course, if you hit him, it would come out of your food rations. On occasion, he'd beat the cult members with the dull side of an axe or with a hammer. They obviously could not go to the hospital. Rock would urinate on them or demand they smear themselves with each other's feces. This is awful and disgusting. And what is wrong with these people? I know. Eventually, one of the mothers was permitted to leave with her two youngest children, But in exchange for this, she had to leave behind the daughter she had before joining the cult. This girl was around puberty age, and Rock had already had plans for her to be his newest wife. Mother agreed and took her to his youngest and ran. However, However, after a few months outside the cult, she decided to take legal action to get her eldest daughter away from Rock. This led to the Children's Aid Society to come in and take the kids to foster homes. It sounds like 
Children's Aid Society is the equivalent to Americans DHS or DCF, DCFS. Yeah, I would agree from what I could find. As they investigated the compound, especially how the kids were treated, they were disturbed to say the least. Rockwood at times hold two different women's children over a fire and make them beg for their ch- children's lives. Other times, he would pin a child to a tree by their clothes and with knives and then instruct the other kids to throw stones or stab the child, only to stop them at the very last second. Many kids had rotting teeth and had no education outside of Rock's religious ideals. They were forced to do chores and were deprived of basic needs like hygiene, nourishment, and sleep. Rock's religious ideals that he shared included group sex, and at times he even had the children masturbate him or watch other group members masturbate each other. By the end of October of 1987, the children were removed and the parents were granted no access to them. As it should be. Those poor kids. I can't even imagine going through all of that. I can't either, but despite the children being removed, there wasn't enough evidence to prosecute Rock because no parents were willing to testify against him. Things got worse and worse in the commune as Rock continued to get drunk and violent. It'd take way too long to talk about every violent incident, but for everyone to get an idea, I'll give a few examples. One night, he threw a hunting knife at Giselle, creating a large gash in her thigh, drank another beer, and then went to sleep while she gushed blood. He hit one follower over the head with a blunt axe and then broke the same follower's ribs with a wooden club. He hogtied one follower, hung him from the ceiling, and demanded the women pluck out all of the followers' pubic hairs. He made his followers eat dead mice, and he broke one follower's cheekbone when she was six months pregnant. Again, this is just a small few of his violent ways. It doesn't even cover half of it. It would be after killing one follower from a botched surgery he decided to perform drunk, then a botched amputation he tried to perform drunk also, that one of his followers would run away and notify authorities. Finally, on January 18, 1993, Rock was sentenced to life in prison. In 1999, he was up for but denied parole. At that time, many of his followers were still loyal to him, while others had gone on to create a life without him. His over 20 children were put in foster homes across Canada. That was a wild one. I cannot believe I've never heard of this cult. This guy was pure evil. He was, and to know that... During this same time, the whole Jonestown thing was happening, and he definitely had some, like, idolization uh, for Jonestown. But obviously, he doesn't do the same thing. I think he just liked the fact that he could get people to follow him like like Jonestown had. But this was definitely a wild case to me because I'd never heard of this cult. Jonestown seems pretty popular, and I don't know if it's because it's a mass suicide But, like, this one I don't think was all over the news. I haven't heard of this either. But I don't know. I'm always fascinated about all those end cults, how they got there and what their mindset is getting into this. I just can't. I mean, I can understand maybe wanting to belong to something, but I can't understand the craziness that goes on that they go along with. It almost seems like they're somehow they're brainwashed once they get in the cult, which is just crazy. I don't think I could watch these things happen or, like, watch my kids go through this and stay around. I mean, I just, I don't know how your mindset could be like that. I don't either. I could at least understand in the Manson cult what they're all doing LSD and crazy things, but it doesn't even sound like that's what was happening. And other than him drinking, that that wasn't going on here. 
Yeah, I couldn't find anything where it talked about any type of drugs. I mean, other than him drinking heavily and it just sounded like it was him. Nobody else seemed to be anything but sober, but they stayed anyway. So if you enjoyed this episode, you are probably a little twisted because it's a little crazy. Um, But you're our kind of people anyway. So you can follow us on Instagram if you want to see pictures. Um, We're at murder.mimosas on Instagram. If you have an interesting case that maybe we haven't heard of, we're always looking for some new ones. You can email us at murder.mimosas at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter at murder.mimosas. We're on TikTok at murder.mimosas. And then we're on Facebook at Murder Mimosas Podcast. And that one is the one we interact with the most. So if you really want to talk to us, that would be the greatest place to contact us. Um, in the meantime, have a mimosa on us. We'll try to stay out of getting into a cult. <laughs> and enjoy the rest of your weekend. Bye. Bye.